Well, good morning again. Welcome to Grace Bible Church. It's a wonderful morning to be together. Uh, we, uh, this, as Jonathan mentioned earlier, we gathered as men this morning, and I always enjoy that time of sweet fellowship with the men as we discuss uh, different things. We always we tend to we tend to I think it's this is my fault generally. We tend to get off on some tangents and and go off into some discussion that doesn't necessarily fit the uh, the exact. Um, a study that we're in, but it's such a wonderful, sweet time to be together and discussing uh, the things of the Lord with the men. Uh, just, uh, just wonderful, wonderful. Let me pray for us, and and we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning again for this uh, time of gathering. We thank you for those who could be here. Thank you for the visitors that we have today. Just pray that we would uh, show a hand of of hospitality toward them, that they would enjoy their time here, Lord. But we pray that that we would also preach the Word, that we would uh, just preach the Word in a way that is uh, clear and concise, and, Father, a way that trusts uh, in your in what you are doing here, not in what we are doing, not in what we're putting together as as men or, and women as we, as we just uh, go about what we do as a church, that we would trust in your plan and not ours. We thank you this morning for the Word of God. We thank you for your uh, the preaching. We pray that every heart here would be uh, preparing themselves for a time of communion, uh, the believers here for a time of partaking, the unbelievers that uh, are with us, Lord, that would, they would hear the gospel, prepare their hearts for uh, and make their hearts fertile for uh, the the word and to hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you and praise you this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. We're returning our, to our study this morning in Ephesians, and I as I this is actually part two of the sermon that I entitled "The Sovereignty of God." And I I said last week that that wasn't very uh, creative, but it really. I really wanted to capture, I want to capture the, the, really the theme and what Paul is trying to accomplish here in Ephesians. So let me read verses 1 and 2 to you, and we'll, we will, I do plan to finish those verses out this morning. Uh, I know that, uh, well, let me, let me read and then we'll go from there. Starting in verse 1, Paul writes, he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, this morning we're going to look at this introduction or continue to look at this introduction, and we're going to see that Paul emphasizes three extraordinary realities about God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Our Lord has always sovereignly chosen His pioneers, His His. Uh, of his people who go forth with the gospel. He's also sovereignly chosen his people, and his sovereignly, he has sovereignly chosen his plan. And we're going to see that, I hope, this, this morning. Now, I believe that Ephesians is the pinnacle of New Testament, or of Pauline, that is, or Pauline, probably a better way to say it, Pauline doctrine. And as such, I believe that the letter is the capstone of the New Testament. In this letter, Paul dots all the I's and crosses all the T's. He, he does this especially concerning the church, which was a mystery to the Old Testament saints. Now, I want you to understand that as we study this letter, as we continue through this study, 
we are in rarefied air. And I'm not, I'm not alone in thinking this. Listen to this quote by Martin Lloyd-Jones. He said, it is very difficult to speak of Ephesians in a controlled manner because of its greatness and because of its sublimity. Many have tried to describe it. One writer has described it as the crown and climax of Pauline theology. Another has said that it is the distilled essence of the Christian religion, the most authoritative and most consummate compendium of holy Christian faith. What language? And it is by no means exaggerated, end quote. But we are, I join Martin Lloyd-Jones in saying that we are in rarefied air as we study through this incredible, incredible epistle. Now many of you, as we switch gears there, many of you know the story of how I was uh, called to the Master's Seminary. And I, when we, if you don't know the, some of the story, I actually wrote some blog posts that we posted uh, several, a couple of years ago so that people would understand and know why I was called to, this, to, to ministry. But I just wanted to, to, to let you know, to tell you that when I arrived as, as part of this sermon, I kept hearing from the students and professors about two different, two different curriculums at the Master's Seminary. There was the incredibly rigorous published curriculum with thousands of pages of reading, hundreds of pages of writing, challenging exams, and uh, uh, the language curriculum that would be challenging by itself. But upon r- arrival, I found out that there were actually two curriculums. There was two that there was this hidden curriculum, that there was this challenge that happened to every man who came there. No one knew when they arrived what would appear in this hidden curriculum. Some men faced family challenges, some sickness of children, marital issues, financial problems. There was one man who, whose son actually got, was cut playing uh, as, he was tra- as they were traveling to seminary or getting ready to travel to seminary just a few weeks before leaving, that is, he contracted a bacterial infection and spent several weeks in the hospital on the edge of death. This is all prior to, to going to seminary. There was another man whose family was involved in an accidental shooting. Some men faced great personal challenges. I remember one situation where the man couldn't cope and just walked out on his wife and four kids. Sin rears its ugly head when we're under the most pressure. Health problems can come. There can be a lack of personal discipline. You name it. You name it, it can happen. You never knew what was going to hit you. Usually it would be a combination of these. You can't imagine the number of stories we heard from the men who attended or who had attended the seminary. Most, if not all, the men who attend face these trials to some degree or another. When combined, though, with the academic rigor, the second curriculum is more than some men can handle. But one thing is for certain. One thing is for certain. The rigor of academics and the trials reveals, revealed the character of each man. I'll never forget the last conversation I had with my closest friend, the last conversation before I left seminary with my closest friend. He said, I know a bunch of stuff has happened to you. He said, I, I know about a, a, many of those things. I was involved with many of those things. And I know the stuff that's happened to your family before, while you've been here. But I want you to know that God has used everything 
that happened to prepare you for what you will face when you arrive where you're going. Beloved, he was correct. Every moment that God used to prepare me in seminary has been used since I've been here. Beloved, this is how God works. This is how He works in our lives, especially when we're sold out in service to Him. He uses every aspect of our lives to put us in the best position to be used for His glory. Now last week we started uh, our study into the text of Ephesians by looking at the very first phrase of this book. Now, some of you may have done some math and and realized that it's taken me three sermons so far, now this is the fourth, to preach what amounts to seven words in the Greek text. Now, you have to give me some credit because two of those sermons were truly introductory material, so I hadn't actually gotten to the text. But I'm sure that you realize that at that rate, it'll take us about seven or eight years to make it through. But I can assure you I plan to go a little faster than that. Now, we started these first two verses last week by looking at the first point of our outline. Our Lord has always sovereignly chosen His pioneers. By pioneers, we mean that God specifically chooses men and women to blaze trails for Him. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus told His disciples, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8 that is, but you will receive the power, power, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be My witnesses, both in Jerusalem and all Judea and in Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. So God planned for the gospel to go to the remotest part of the earth. He, even, even, uh, he, he plans for the church then to span the globe and to exist even in the remotest of locations. John Stott says this, we must be global Christians with a global vision because our God is a global God. The point, though, that I'm making is is that God uses men and women to be pioneers and trailblazers as they carry forth the gospel. Now, last week we learned that God specifically chose a pioneer named Saul, or Paul, the Apostle Paul, who to be, that is, the Apostle to the Gentiles. What we learned was, was that was God's sovereign choice to make. It was by God's will that Paul became an Apostle. As such, it was not Paul's idea. It wasn't anyone else's idea. It was God's alone. God chose specifically to order Paul's life in such a way that he was the perfect man for the task. Every aspect of Paul's life was perfectly aligned to lay the foundation of the Gentile church. Now this is important for us to recognize because I believe in this introduction, Paul is laying the foundation for what he will say to the rest of to the Ephesians and the rest of the letter. Paul clearly understands that God put him into service. And I believe that that amazed him for the rest of his life. So in telling the Ephesians that his apostleship was by the will of God, Paul sets the stage for for teaching them that their lives have also been perfectly ordered for service to God. Do you get the point? Beloved, in making this point, I want to... I want to reiterate that this applies to you as well. As a Christian, God is at work in your life and in your heart to use you for His glory. And beloved, He is at work in this church for that very same purpose. Last week I said that Ephesians 
is not primarily about your salvation, but about how Christ is building the church. You could say, and I'm going to because I believe it, that Ephesians is Paul's exposition of Matthew 16, where Jesus promised to build his church. Having said this, I want you to understand that Ephesians is about your salvation, though. It's about your salvation because when God chose to save you, He also chose to place you into His church, the body of Christ. Don't don't fly over that. Don't fly over that. So many people do. So many people would say, well, I'm a Christian, but I don't have to be a part of this. I don't have to be a part of this gathering to be a Christian. But in reality, there is not, there's no such thing as a Christian separate from the church. Separate from the church. God does not save people, then keep them separate from His church. This truth is really the second point of the sermon. That God has sovereignly chosen not only His pioneers, but He's also chosen His people. Look at the second part of verse 1. It says, "...to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus." Again, if God has saved you, then He has placed you into His church. There's no exceptions to that truth. Put another way, your destiny and the destiny of the church are intertwined. If you are a believer, having turned to Him in saving faith, He's done several things for you personally. He saved you by His grace. That's Ephesians 2, 5 and Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. He has sanctified you. That's Ephesians 1, 1. He has given you peace. It's Ephesians 1, 2. He has shown you mercy. That's Ephesians 2, 4. He has shown you a great love. That's again Ephesians 2, 4. He has made you alive together with Christ. That's Ephesians 2, 5. He has seated you with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's Ephesians 2, 6. He has sealed you with the Holy Spirit of promise. That's Ephesians 1.13. And He's placed you in the body of Christ. He's placed you here. He's given you gifts. That's Ephesians 4.11. And here's the tr- amazing truth about this. He has done all these things with every one of you who are in Christ. As I've stated, stated all of you, have been placed into Christ, that is, into His body. If you don't believe me, just stay. Stay with me. Look at the text. It says, to the saints. With this phrase, Paul refers to the people who have been set apart for service to God. God has made us holy. He has set us apart. Every one of us has been set apart. If you are a believer in Christ, you have been set apart unto God in Christ. Every one of us have been made righteousness by, by made righteous by the righteousness of Christ. We are all saints. There is no exception, again, if you are in Christ. If you are a Christian, then God has set you apart. This is, all, this is a wonderful truth, that, that we are all equal in that sense in Christ. The world has its hierarchy, but in Christ we're equal. We have all been set apart by Him, for service to Him. Paul goes on to specify that these specific saints are in Ephesus. Now, 
I want to say more about this designation, but I, here I want to point out that Paul identifies this local gathering of believers as being the church. In other words, anywhere that the saints gather, anywhere that saints gather is the local church. Said another way, Paul uses the, the word saints here to signify the members of the local church at Ephesus as such. As such, you could refer to this church as the saints who are in Gainesville at a church called Grace Bible Church of Gainesville. Beloved, you have been set apart for service to God and you have been placed into the body of Christ and you're here for a purpose. This was true for Ephesus and it is true for all the churches of that time period and it has been true for every faithful church in the church age. Keep moving in the text. It says, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. You see, Paul further, further qualifies his audience. In other words, if you are a Christian, then you are faithful. The Greek word that's translated faithful by the NASB has been translated in the passive sense as, as faithful or trustworthy, but it could be translated in the, in the active sense as in believing. Now, I think that most, most major translations translate this in the passive sense, the, the idea of faithful, trustworthy, and I think that's the correct translation. We can't miss that Paul is very deliberate in these greetings. He, he doesn't, he's not just flippantly saying, hello, how you doing? That's why we, you know, how, how you been doing? That's how we kind of do a greeting in a letter. How's it, how's it been going? Now, Paul is very, very, very... He's very strategic in how he puts this together. We'll see in a few moments that Paul sees the church at Ephesus as strategic to his plans. He's, he's emphasizing then the church's faithfulness or trustworthiness and service. He recognizes their strategic importance to the future of the churches. Let me illustrate this to you. You've all had someone come to you and begin to butter you up, so to speak, right? Sometimes uh, they, they say all sorts of nice things, emphasizing your good qualities. Sometimes they emphasize a specific quality. You know, if you're a man, your wife may come and say, wow, you're looking really strong lately. You're looking really strong. What do you think she might want, right? She might want that piano to be moved. You know, because she's, she's emphasizing that you look really strong and that you can, you can do this. Or your kids might say, hey, mom, just to let you know, I finished my homework. I put the dishes away, and I cleaned the bathroom. Now, if the, your kids came to you and said that, what would you say to them? I would actually say, I, I hope you know CPR because I'm absolutely shocked that you would do so, that you would do this. But after that, you would probably say, what? What do you want? Right? What do you want? What do you want? We say this because we know that they're looking for something. Now, I'm not saying that Paul is as devious as your teenager can be, but I do believe that, in a sense, he's buttering them up. He wants to emphasize their faithfulness for service because their faithfulness is so important. It's like the football coach who knows the importance of the quarterback to the game plan. He knows that the quarterback needs to step up his passing in the game, so the coach might remind him of a certain game where he passed the ball extremely well. He does this to help the quarterback's mindset, right? 
In this case, Paul emphasizes the faithfulness of the saints in Ephesus. He wants them to understand the importance of their faithfulness to the future of the church, not just the church at Ephesus, not just that church, but the future of the worldwide church. So now why are they called saints who are faithful? Because they are in Christ Jesus. The reason for their faithfulness, the reason why that they can be called faithful or trustworthy is because they're in Christ Jesus. The reason they can be called saints is because they're in Christ Jesus. They have been placed into the body of Christ. Now this phrase we see in Christ Jesus, who are faithful in Christ Jesus, this phrase in its various forms occurs an astounding 39 times in this letter. Paul, as Paul reminds them of their identity in Christ, the form, this particular form in Christ Jesus occurs seven times, all in the first three chapters of the letter. This is because Paul wants to emphasize the believer's position in Christ or their union with Christ. Harold Honer says this. He's a commentator on several, written several commentaries, but also one on Ephesians, it says, he says this, this marks the new error. For the saints are those who are connected with Christ Jesus, something to which the Old Testament saints looked forward, end quote. In other words, union with Christ was a radically new concept to them. We can't miss the impact of this. Believers are supernaturally in union with Christ. Belief in Christ Belief in Christ is the mechanism by which they are placed into the body of Christ. Union with Christ is the result of their belief in Christ. And in this case, they're in union with Messiah Jesus, Christ Jesus. Now we have to understand that this word Christ means anointed one, means anointed one, or Messiah. Now, what we need to grasp is is that the designation is Jesus' title. It's not His surname. Like, my name is Brandon. Christ is his title. Peter emphasized this in Acts 2.36 by stating this. This crucified Jesus was both Lord, Kyrios, and Christ, Christos. Prior to his conversion, Paul would have seen it blasphemous to identify the man, Jesus, as the Messiah. But after his conversion, he preached to the Jews that Jesus was the Son of God and the Christ. Now, we should recognize that that Jesus' title as, as the Messiah is synonymous with His name. We understand this. As I said earlier, my name is Brandon, right? But some of you call me Pastor Brandon, right? Pastor is my title. But when I've been pastor for many years, especially in one place... It becomes synonymous with my name. I become Pastor Brandon, even though, even though pastor is my title. When someone is elected president of the United States, they become what? President Reagan, President Bush, President Clinton, President Obama. And I'm sure you've noticed that we refer to them as president even after they leave the office. They become... De- uh, they identify as president. We, we see them as president. Their title becomes part of their name. Why do we identify the office with their name? Because of the gravity of the office. Because of the gravity of the office. The, the importance of the office. 
In this case, there is no higher office than that of Messiah. That's how Christians identify Him. He is Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. And it's how we identify ourselves. We are Christians, right? We identify with the Messiah. We are His body. Paul wanted the saints at Ephesus to understand their union with Christ Jesus. He wanted them to understand that they were in Christ Jesus. Again, this, is, this was very strategic for Paul. He wanted the church at Ephesus to recognize their place in Christ, and he wanted them to remain faithful in Christ Jesus. Again, that, that faithfulness. He wants to remind them of who they are. He wants to remind them of their faithfulness because of, of their strategic importance, which we'll see more in a moment. Let's look at the last point of this, this part two. We've seen the first two points. We saw the first point last week that, that God has always sovereignly chosen His pioneers. His second point we saw is people. And now we're, let's look at His plan. God has always sovereignly chosen His plan. This past week, some of you were asking about my verse divisions and why the third point didn't seem to advance the text. Because I had just one B in that, in that parentheses, and, and actually I should have had verse 2, but in, in a sense I am backing up a little bit here, but I'm going to move forward as well. What I want to do in this point three is I want to back up and look at the city of Ephesus and the church there, and I want to move forward by looking at Paul's blessing of them. And I also want to remind you that this sermon will close out this introductory material of Ephesians. As we look at every aspect, we try to look at every aspect of why Paul has written this letter. So let's look at the city of Ephesus. Let's look at the city of Ephesus. Now there is a textual problem here in this verse. I don't talk about that, those very often, but I think this one is important enough to bring up uh, because, of, because of how I'm taking this, the direction I'm taking this. There is some evidence that the letter to the Ephesians may have been a general letter or not specifically addressed to the Ephesians. That the words, uh, the words in, Ephesus, in Ephesus or in Epheso in the, in the Greek actually don't, are not in the, in the letter. Now, I personally believe that this letter was specifically intended for Ephesus, and there's an important reason I believe that. But I, let me just say this. I think that the language of the letter does not fit well without the phrase. If you, if you read the language and you study it, what you'll find is, is it doesn't fit very well. And so the, the, the phrase in Ephesus, I believe, should be there for that reason. I'm doubtful that Paul would have written the letter without those words, in, in other words. Second, as I've alluded to, I believe Paul is very strategic in what he's telling the church. And I believe that Ephesus, then, is a very strategic location for Paul. Therefore, I'm certain that Paul intended this letter, this particular letter, for Ephesus, though, as we know, it has wider implications. It's not just intended, it's intended specifically for Ephesus for that time, but it has wider implications. Now, you might read this letter, and you see that you might notice that it is devoid of personal language, meaning that he doesn't he doesn't say greet you know greet this person or greet that person. He doesn't say those things in this letter. And you might realize that Paul normally puts personal language in, into most of his letters. He even put personal language into the letter to the church at Rome. 
a place he'd never visited. I mean, he, he talked about specific people in those ter- churches. Now, he spent, I mean, I guess the question is, why not this letter then? He spent over three years in Ephesus. He was there, he pastored there for, for that time. So why wouldn't Paul be personal when he's writing a letter to a church that he knows so well, is the question. First, I don't think he wrote this letter for personal reasons. Similar to Galatians, I believe Paul was all business. He had strategic reasons to write this letter, and he quickly got down to those, those reasons. Now, also, secondly, I, I, don't, I think that, that Paul had a personal relationship with this church, which allowed for him to cut out the personal talk. Meaning, he didn't have to say all the personal things because he had such a close relationship with them. With them they knew who he was. They would, have, they would have assumed those things. So let's look at the history of the church. The gospel was probably first brought to Ephesus by Priscilla and Aquila. They, this couple was gifted by the Lord at teaching and evangelism. This was a, evidenced by their time with a man named Apollos in Acts 18, who they took aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Now, Paul left Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus on his second missionary journey. Presumably, I, I think that he did this to keep a presence in the city. Now, the city itself was located on a river called the Caister River on the east side of the Aegean Sea. The, the city was well known for its magnificent temp, temple of Artemis, or Diana, which was considered to be one of the seven wonders of the world. It was a, a, as such, it was an important political and, and commercial center, and it ranked with Alexandria in, in Egypt and, and, uh, and in, with Antioch of Pisidia in, in, a, in southern Asia Minor, meaning that it was, it was a, considered to be a great city. The city sat inland, but the, the Caster River allowed for access or seaport access into the, into the city. So it possessed the best harbor in Asia Minor, and it also had four trade roads that went to the city. Therefore, the city became known as the gateway to Asia, Asia Minor. Now, the struggling little church that Priscilla and Aquila planted was firmly established by Paul during his third missionary journey in Acts 19. As I said earlier, he actually pastored there for three years. Now, upon his departure, Paul left his protege, Timothy, who pastored there, pastored the congregation for a year and a half. And according to Paul's first letter to Timothy, he primarily, primarily left him there to fight against the false teaching of a few influential men, among whom were Hymenaeus and Alexander, who were probably elders in the congregation there, according to 1 Timothy 1, 3 and, and 20. Now, what I've said is, is that this church was very strategic. Therefore, Paul was very concerned about their future. There's no doubt that the enemy understood the, the church's strategic importance because the attacks on it were incessant. From its early days, the church at Ephesus struggled with false doctrines, such as unscriptural ideas like forbidding of marriage and abstaining of certain foods. But the church, what, we, what I want you to understand here, is the church was so important in the Lord's program that the Apostle John actually spent time there as well. Later, as recorded in Revelation, Christ gave a letter to the church warning them that, it, they, had let, that they had left their first love, that's in Revelation 2, 1-7, and telling them to return to them. Now, what's crucial, let me, let me get to why it's so crucial. 
What we have to understand is that Ephesus is one of the seven churches that we saw recorded in or see recorded in Revelation located in Asia Minor. Ephesus, though, was the first church on a loop road that formed sort of a horseshoe. So it was the first church on that on that road. So if you look at the book of Revelation, the first church that that Jesus writes to is the church at Ephesus. The second one is the church at Smyrna. And the pattern follows the physical location on the road until the last church being Laodicea. Now, it makes sense that Ephesus was the first church on this loop because of its importance and because of its strategic location as a gateway to Asia. Now, if you look at a map... If you look at a map of Paul's missionary journeys, you'll find that Ephesus not only is strategic in its location to the churches in Asia Minor, so, so it was the first church on that, loca- on that road that I mentioned, but it's strategic in linking the eastern churches with the western churches. The eastern churches such as Lystra, Derby, Antioch, and even Jerusalem is con- are connected to the western churches such as Corinth, Thessalonica, and Philippi. And, and in the middle of this is Ephesus sitting in that seaport that I mentioned and sitting on those trade roads that I mentioned. Yeah, as such, then, Ephesus acted like the hub of a wagon wheel. The, the spokes radiated out to the other churches. The spokes were the overland and overwater trade routes that allowed for access to the out, outer regions. If the hub, this is what I want, to, I want you to understand, if the hub was, were weakened, or destroyed, the integrity of that wheel is compromised. That's why Paul sees it as so important to to strengthen the church at Ephesus. In the same way, Paul understood the importance of Ephesus, and he also understood, in the same way as that hub, Paul understood the importance of Ephesus, and he also understood that doctrine intended for the wider church would need to start at the hub of the churches, Ephesus. Therefore, Ephesus had to remain strong doctrinally, because it was in a central location used to spread the gospel to other regions. Now, it's probably helpful to understand then that Paul wrote this letter from prison in Rome. And so he sent this letter to Ephesus, no doubt wanting this letter to be taken further out, to be spread through the churches. Now you understand why I believe that while this letter seems to be a general letter in some ways, why I believe that it actually went to Ephesus, it was intended for Ephesus, and then it was disseminated from, from there, from, from Ephesus to the other churches. There's no doubt that Paul was very concerned for the churches, and he desperately wanted to ensure that they were strengthened doctrinally. And that would explain the doctrinal depth of this letter. It would explain why it's so rich and deep. And it explains why he wrote this letter with much wider implications than just Ephesus. Now, Paul closes out this introduction by giving the Ephesians a double blessing. Let me say this real quick before I get into this. That's why I'm saying Paul was emphasizing their faithfulness, right? Because he saw Paul understood the the importance of the faithfulness of the saints in Ephesus. He understood the importance of the doctrinal depth that they needed to have in order to be that hub church, in order to be the church where doctrine and the gospel went forth to to other places. But Paul closes out this introduction by giving 
giving the Ephesians a double blessing. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's a typical greeting in the early church. The word translated grace means kindness, the kindness of God toward undeserving people. In that time period, people when they met would say, grace to you. This meant that they wished God's grace or undeserved kindness on the other party. It reminded them of the reason that they were in Christ. They had been shown grace. Do you realize that if you're here today, that if you're here today, you've been shown the grace of God? You've been shown the grace of God. I hope you understand what God has done for you. I hope that you, when you see someone who is in dire straits, that God has shown grace toward you. It's not because you're anything different than them. I hope you join a man named John Bradford in saying, and when he encountered a group of prisoners who were being led to their execution, you know what he said? He said, there. But for the grace of God goes John Bradford. He understood his place, right? He understood what God had done for him. And I pray that we never forget the goodness of God's grace. It's all grace. Your entire life is grace. As John MacArthur states, grace is the fountain of all blessings. It's out of His grace that everything comes. And as I said, this is a double blessing. The word translated peace, this is... Grace to you and peace. The word translated peace means is the Old Testament word shalom. Shalom. John MacArthur again states, grace is the fountain and peace is the stream. As a result of God's grace, I can have peace from God. I can have peace with God. I have grace from God, therefore I can have peace with God. Said another way, said it a different way, there would be no peace without His grace. If you're ever, if you're ever around, and I'm sure you are, unbelievers, no peace, right? Absolutely no peace. It's, their life is chaos. Because they're always in enmity with someone. But ultimately, they're in enmity with God. And their enmity with others flows out of that. But this, all of this is from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. They are the, the source of the grace and the peace. Outside of them can be no grace and peace. You see, Paul wanted the church to understand the infinite, matchless grace of God. He wanted you to understand God's infinite and matchless grace. Paul may not have known you. He didn't know you when he wrote this. But he knew the God who knows you. He knew the God who knows you from the foundation of this world. And we'll see that in a few verses. Beloved, you are fully known by the Savior. And if you know Him, if you know Him and have been saved by Him, you have received His grace and peace. You received His grace and peace. This grace and peace comes from our Savior. And then, as a further bonus in the, in the text, 
this text shows, this construction shows that there's an equivalence between God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, they are one in essence. One in essence. They're persons, two separate persons, but one in essence. And beloved, that's just the introduction. Right? We just did the first two verses. We're in, a tr- in for a treat as we, approach the rest of this, as we approach the rest of this letter. As I said earlier, this study will be rarefied air. Listen to Lloyd-Jones again. And I quote, There are statements and passages in this epistle which really baffle description. The great apostle piles epithet upon epithet, adjective upon adjective, and still he cannot express himself adequately. There are passages in the first chapters, chapter and others in the third chapter, especially towards the end, where the apostle is carried out above and beyond himself and loses and abandons himself in a great outburst of worship and praise and thanksgiving. I repeat, therefore, there is nothing more sublime in the whole range of Scripture than this epistle to the Ephesians. End quote. Now I want to take a few minutes before we close out this morning just to give you a few lessons that we can learn from this introduction. First, God sovereignly chooses to use men and women for His purposes and His glory. God sovereignly chooses to use men and women for His purposes and His glory. Brethren, this is no different today. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus, then you have been sovereignly chosen for a purpose. Your life has been bought with a price. You have been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And you have been given gifts. And all of this is for you to carry out the ministry, uh, your ministry within the body of Christ. We tend to think in terms of our jobs, our houses, our bank accounts, our level of education, and our address. But God thinks in terms of His sovereign will and He uses all those things for His purposes and glory. Second, you can rest in the sovereign purposes of God. I'm certain that Paul questioned what God was doing in his life. Just think about this. Do you think Paul could have questioned God in all those years of wandering after he was sent back to Tarsus? I'm certain that he wondered why God had put him on the shelf. At the time, Jerusalem was where it was all happening. And then he was sent away because they were afraid of him. I mean, he had lost everything for Christ. Everything was gone. Now, he counted it all as rubbish, right? Those things that he lost. But if you think about it, if you think about where he was at in his mindset, he was resting in the sovereignty of God. He was resting in the sovereignty of God. God never intended for the gospel to stop at Jerusalem, right? It was to go to the remotest parts of the earth. And God sovereignly chose Paul to be that vessel to take it there. Third, you can rest in God's sovereign plan for you, your family, and your church. You see, God knows what He's doing. He is involved in every detail of your life. You are fully known by Him. He knows your family. He knows your spouse. He knows your kids. He knows every detail of your life. We don't have to worry because He has it all in His hands and He's worked out every detail. 
He knows about His church. He understands every relationship here. He knows the purpose for this church's existence. We don't have to worry about our future. We don't have to have that anxiety, right? You don't have to worry about what God is going to do and not going to do because it's already planned out and it's already planned out for your good and His glory. He knows the exact plan, even when we don't. I think I'm on the fourth one. You can trust that God is always working out His sovereign plan. You see, God never rests or takes a day off. He never forgets us. We get impatient, we lose faith, we wonder what's going to happen next, but, and we're like Gideon looking for dew on the fleece. But you can trust that God has never stopped and will never stop working out His plan. We just need to look forward to it in anticipation. Think of Ephesus, right? I mean, the, the, the strategic nature of Ephesus, that God had all that worked out. He had all that worked out. He knew exactly what He was doing. He knew exactly how He was going to do it. And we can trust in that plan. Fifth. You may have to, this may stretch you a little bit, but that's okay. There's plenty of ministry to go around. There's plenty of ministry to go around. This goes back to how Paul used, or God used Paul. His ministry was not to Jerusalem, but God used him to spread the gospel outside of Jerusalem to the Gentiles. You see, I mean, he, he, was, he, he wasn't connected directly. He was connected to the apostles because he went to visit them. But, but he had ministry. God gave him ministry. In our flesh, we tend to think that there's only so much ministry to do so we can become jealous of others. Yet God has given us an abundance, an abundance of ministry. Some of us are like Paul. Some of us are like Barnabas. Some of us are like James. Some of us are like that blessed saint who keeps the bathrooms clean. Some are gifted for overseas missions. Some are gifted church planners. Some love to minister to the young ladies at the crisis pregnancy center. Some love to share the gospel at their jobs. Beloved, we should rejoice when God gives ministry to the church. We should rejoice when we see God using others for His work. That's the principle in Romans 12 where Paul says in Romans 12.15, Rejoice with those who rejoice. We should rejoice when we see ministry being done. Rejoice that we see God using others in ministry. Even, even if we feel like we're on the shelf. Even if we feel like that God is somehow has forgotten us. We should rejoice when we see God using others for His glory. Sixth and last. Jesus will build His church. Jesus will build His church. As I said, I see Ephesians as an exposition of Christ's proclamation that He will build His church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. He will build it and He will protect it. He'll build it in His own timing and He'll build it in according to His will. He will use the people whom He chooses to use. He will give us the gifts we need when we need them. He, he'll give us exactly what we need. And He will work in His perfect timing. Beloved, God has, or specifically Jesus, has shed His blood. He bought you with a price. And He has placed you into His body, the church, to 
bring Him glory. To serve Him. I pray we do it with all that we have and all that we are. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You again this morning as we enter a time of communion, remembering the Lord's death on the cross. Lord, I thank You for this church. I thank You for Your sovereign plan that even here in this city of Gainesville, You have brought this church to be for Your purposes and Your plan. We don't know what that is. We're here eager to serve You. Lord, I pray that we would just rest in Your plan, that we would serve and do ministry, that, that we know that there's an abundance of ministry to do. We know that there's more than enough. We trust in You. We thank You that You've saved us and placed us into Your body so that we might serve You. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.